0: invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be starting in verse 19 in your copy of scripture. And uh, here we are in week number four of our series called How to Be Happy, and we're talking about how to find true joy in a culture of negativity. And do we need this message in our culture right now? Is anybody else feeling the weights of all the negativity that you see and the bantering and bickering and fighting and the just angst that seems to uh, pop up everywhere you turn? You know, I um, have seen this happen so often, and I try to be very careful about what I post on, uh, on social media, but maybe some of you guys have seen this, some poor friend of yours Uh, decides that they want to put, you know, like a link to some article, and they even throw out all the disclaimers before, like, hey, um, I'm not saying I agree with everything in this article, but this guy makes some good points about stuff, you know, and then they post it and hit that post now, and it's up there for the world to see, and then you can just see how things just kind of disintegrate, right? And somebody hops up there and says, oh, yeah, well, I think that blah, 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 blah. And then somebody else jumps in and is like, oh, yeah, but did you read this article? These are really the facts and put something up. And pretty soon before you know it, there's a giant war going on. And I see this happen. I'm like, oh, no, no. But a, a giant war going on amongst people that don't even know each other, but their common denominator is you. Do you know what I'm saying? Some of you are like, yeah, no, I had some of that. That's a mistake. Yeah, I I did that. It's like, now all of a sudden, they're even talking back and forth to each other, and you're like, that was a kid that was in my eighth grade science class, and now he's angry at a server that I worked with two years ago at Applebee's, and now they're mad at, you know, my second cousin. These guys are all fighting with each other, and they don't know each other. All they know is me, and it just has spiraled downward. And we see that happening all over, and there is such a vital need for us to step back and look into God's word and understand what is he saying, what is God saying about true joy and true happiness. So... Um last week, you know, uh, Brian ended with uh, the phrase um there in verse 18 that says, you know, uh I'm going to rejoice whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. And you can see if your Bible is anything like mine, there's kind of a break in the paragraph and I'm starting with verse 19, yet there's five words before verse 19 that says yes I will rejoice. You see that in there? So it's almost like that, uh, that literary um, technique is saying, oh yes, I'm going to rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. It's like ratcheting it up and reassuring the people that he's writing to that like, look at my life as an example. I'm going through some difficult things and I've hopefully tried to share with you why. I can have a different perspective, but I'm going to continue and now I'm going to share with you why. And he's going to go even further in instruction. Now, the danger for us here this morning, anytime we start talking about this, is we can make something uh, that's so incredibly uh, complex seem trite and cheesy. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe when you even saw the the title of this, like How to Be Happy, like, you know, or maybe you grew up somewhat like I did, kind of steeped in the Christian subculture in my formative years where we learned a lot of songs uh, as little kids in Sunday school that would cause you to think that joy just comes really easily like it's some never-ending stream of goodness, right? You know, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Where? (gasps) Down in my heart, down in my heart. I've got the joy, 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 joy down in... Down in my heart to stay. Why? Because I'm so happy, so very happy. Right? You know what I'm talking about? And like you almost hear that song and you just want to punch somebody. (laughs) It's like, no, I'm not. No, it's not. I don't care about the, I've got the wonderful love of my blessed redeemer right down in the depths of my heart, you know? Anybody with me on those songs? You're with me on that? The cheese, the Christian cheese from way back when. Oh, it's crazy. Um, But as I was thinking about this and how trite Sometimes we make these complex issues. There was another song uh, in another realm that came into my mind. So just for 60 seconds here, I have to invite you into the scary underground world of the Christian subculture that I grew up in. My parents were trying their best back in the late 70s, early 80s, um, you know, playing tapes in the car and records at home. Not because they were cool, it's because that's what we had back in the day. But I remember one of the main influences on my formative years was a, I think musician would be a very generous term, but it was a artist named Little Marcy. Has anyone ever heard of Little Marcy? Of course not. You know why? All the people that grew up listening to her are now locked away somewhere for counseling okay now i'm just telling you the truth she was like a little uh you know um a ventriloquist type of setup there for the little kids and uh you know she would sing all these songs had this really high annoying raspy voice and that's that would just be on repeat as much as a tape or a record could be on repeat and so i'm like you know man that was a weird part of my childhood i wonder if i could do a little research and find out what was up with this little Marcy. So I uh, did an internet Google search, and here's what came up. <laughs> a little Marcy's the scary looking one in the middle. <laughs> and uh, apparently her, you know, her owner there next to her and some other random child that was forced to listen to all of this. <laughs> But this was Little Marcy uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, apparently. Go to the next slide. There's, um, you know, if you really like Little Marcy, you could get your own Little Marcy doll uh, as well to like just kind of perch up there and creepily look at you. Um, Little Marcy apparently needs a lesson in modesty, too. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, But yeah, this was the image that is just burned here. So please, can we get it off the screen? Lest we have nightmares. Thank you. But the point is, little Marcy sang a song that said, happiness is to know the Savior. Do you guys know this one? Happiness is to know the Savior living a life that's in his favor making a change in my behavior. Thank you. Somebody's good at rhyming. Happiness is the Lord. Real joy is mine. No matter if the teardrops start. <laughs> I found the secret. It's Jesus in my heart. That's the songs that I grew up on. And I don't mean to mock the concept, because the concept is good. It's true, but it's trite. It's correct, but it's cheesy. It's significant, but it's way too simple. And as we continue in this message, I want us to understand here this morning that there's a big risk When we try and package things like this, there's a weightiness to this place and to humanity um, because I know what's going on with many of you. Several weeks ago, I shared with you that I spent some time in a very unique place that was dark and dingy, and I wanted to focus on um, God and get away from all the distractions and and um, similar to Paul, as he, you know, in these, in these first several verses, you know, when he was there imprisoned uh, in, in some sort of house arrest type of situation, some, some people say even for two years, okay? And other situations where he was, you know, in, in uh, a little bit more of a prison jail cell type of setting. Um, over and over and over again, you see that Paul, when he's in those moments of silence, um, continually people's circumstances and the trials of these people that he loves that they're going through those are what comes to his mind. And when I was down there for a span of six hours just in silence and waiting on God and quieting myself and listening to God. There were many of your faces and your situations that I know of that came to mind. So we recognize the weight of what people are carrying. There's a weakness that needs to be reconciled. There's fears that need to be followed up on. There's a response that needs to be galvanized. And there's a reality that needs to be realized for many of us that there are no easy answers or trite answers. These are difficult circumstances. So that's where we dive into Paul here in, uh, in, in verse 19. And uh, essentially, how we've crafted the message is two very simple things, two very simple responses that Paul had that allowed him to say, hey, you know what, it doesn't matter what my circumstances, I've got a happiness and a joy that, that overrides that. Two responses that Paul says, and the very first one is this, he says, I need help. How can I overcome? How can I continue to rejoice? Well, I actually want to come up with the statement that says, I can't do this alone. I need your help. And there's two ways that this is accomplished here in verse 19 and 20. Let's go ahead and open the text and start to read. Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He notices two things there. The first thing he says, I need help. First thing he says, here's how. Through your prayers. Now, Paul just got done telling them, hey, I want you to know something. There's communication going on here. I want you to know that even though it's been hard for me and I've been chained up, the gospel has exploded. This message has spread. I want you to know that. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to celebrate that. Think about this though the messenger may be bound in chains, the message cannot be bound. That's what Paul's saying. Did you catch that wordplay? What about this one? Caesar's chains actually released the power of the gospel. So whereas he thought, if I just tie him up, if I just set him away and he's imprisoned, that's going to squelch this whole thing. Those chains actually released the power. Think about that in your own life. Ryan talked about chains last week and things that are weighing you down and difficulties and struggles. What if those actual chains meant to hold you down, released in your life the power of the gospel? Pretty incredible. But the very first thing that Paul mentions about, hey, I need help, I can't do this alone, is is one thing that maybe for some of us, we never even get to this point in our lives. Because Paul's saying, I need help. You know why? I want you to know, Philippians, your prayers have been incredible for me and an encouragement for me. Some of us, in our pride, never even get there. Maybe it's life group, maybe it's some other setting. Hey, anything I can pray for you about? Chirp. Chirp. And you think it's a little bit humbling in a way to pull somebody aside or even to stand up at Life Group or amongst other Christian friends and say, hey, could you guys do me a favor? I really need you guys to pray for me. I need your help. I've got this burden. I've got this fear. I've got this anxiety. I've got this thing that's, that's tearing me to shreds inside and I can't do it alone anymore. I need you to pray for me. Paul's like, I'm not afraid to say that. I need your help. So, matter of fact, it's been such a huge encouragement, Paul says, to know that you have been praying me. And oh, as a matter of fact, I'm praying for you. And in those moments of silence, I think about you and you come to mind and, and you're the ones that I thank, oh, thank God for over and over every time that I, that I think of you. I pray for you and my, my love overflows for you and everything else that we've seen in these first 18 verses of this chapter. Do you have that kind of stature in your spiritual relationship with other people that there's an openness to say, oh, can you pray for me? And there's also an openness to say, I'm praying for you. Oh, and one step beyond that is I want you to know what I'm praying for you. And here's where Paul does such an amazing job because to the Philippians and to the Ephesians and lots of other groups of people that he wrote to, they were giant churches, not even giant, some of them very small churches that came together just like this with people of all ages just like this who gathered together as somebody would read, here's what Paul is saying to you. And and they would read the actual prayers that Paul wrote as part of scripture. Here's what I'm praying for you that the eyes of your heart may be open. And I just pray that your love would abound more and more and all these different great things. He wrote out his prayers. What if we established a culture in this body of believers that said, you know what? I'm going to be praying for people that I know need it. And you know what's deeper than that? I'm going to let them know what I am praying for them. And so you grab your phone and you're like, hey, Jimmy, text message to Jimmy. Hey, man. I just want to let you know, I know what you're going through. I know it's difficult, but man, God's going to be there for you, right? Philippians 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to complete it. I love you, man. You're my brother, and I'm going to be praying for you, and I'm praying that you remain strong. And then you check it to make sure that the spell check didn't let you down, and then you send it. But man, what if we developed a culture of that, praying for each other, letting each other know that we were praying for each other and being prayed for? Paul said he needed that desperately. The second piece of it is not just prayers. That's not the only way that he needed help, right? But he says later on here in verse 19, through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Now catch this. Uh, In the original language, it is structured in such a way that these two things are um, intricately connected. So it's because of the prayers that the power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ is making a difference in Paul's life. Prayer and power are interconnected. So without the prayers um, of, of these people, Paul wouldn't be as powerful. He wouldn't be able to stand up to authority with confidence and have this kind of eager expectation and have this joy in his life if it wasn't for the prayer of other people. And that's huge for us this morning. I also want to point out something else to you. There's a, there's a unique uh, um, literary device that's used in here as Paul's writing that, uh, that maybe we wouldn't pick up on. But he drops certain hints about things, certain words that um, undeniably people as part of his audience would connect with and um, remember what he's talking about. Okay, the, the equivalent would be if I said something like, Charlie bit me. Charlie bit my finger. Ow, Charlie! Anybody know what I'm talking about? Somebody goes like, "This guy is insane." That was a YouTube thing a couple years ago, right? With this little kid and his brother, and it was adorable. Or if I said something like, "Catch me outside," how about that? Somebody like, "I really have no idea what you're talking about." Well, look it up. It's quite humorous. So why am I throwing those things out? Because for many of you, for some of you, you're like, that immediately connects something. You know what I'm talking about. It's a cultural reference. It's some sort of historical reference that perhaps we have in common. And what I'm telling you right here in Philippians chapter 1, Paul's dropping little hints to people to encourage them because he's referencing some other things in the past that they knew about. And you think about Paul right now where he says, hey, you know who's with me right now? You're praying for me, and that's great, but you know who's with me right now? The Spirit of Christ is here with me. I'm not alone. Remember, Paul's house arrest here, this, this imprisonment, was approximately two years. He was put in here under false charges, unfairly. Who else do we know of in the history of Scripture that was imprisoned, ironically, for about two years and was put there under false charges, unfairly? Who are we talking about? Anybody? Joseph. And Paul saying, I'm not alone here. The Spirit of Christ is here with me. You know, I'm okay. And referencing the same situation. Think about this phrase. Talk about not being alone. Talking about God being with you. Check this out here from Genesis. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. Genesis 39:2. He was sold off. He was lonely. He was isolated. He was mistreated as a slave. But the Lord was with him. Same exact phrase used in Genesis 39, same chapter, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him a steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Here he was mistreated, but he was not alone. And that's desperately important for us to understand here this morning. As you think about what you're going through in your situation, you are not Alone, there is a presence. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you're a son or daughter of the king and you've made that decision to believe and put your faith in Christ, scripture says Jesus come and and dwells right here within us and our body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit and God truly resides within us. And further than that, God's concerned with you. He's concerned about you. You are taking up Mental capacity in God's world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is thinking about you? Concerned about you? You see that evidenced all over scripture. But the Lord remembered Noah. The Lord recognized as he's talking to um, Abraham and Isaac and Moses continually. But the Lord remembered his people. I have seen the afflictions. God is on it. Man, Psalm 139 has got a great uh, passage about that. The psalmist says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O Lord? Could it be that God's thinking about us? God's concerned about us? Do you believe that here this morning? We've got a couple more illustrations of that quickly to go through in the New Testament. We talked about some Old Testament ones. Check out these passages of Scripture. First and foremost, in Luke 22, uh, Jesus is talking to Peter. He says, but I have prayed for you. Peter, I was thinking about you. I love you. I chose you. I invited you. You're my man. I've got a plan for you. But Peter, you know what? In my moments of quiet and silence, I have been praying for you. It's incredible. How about this one? In John chapter 17, Jesus says, praying to his father, and he's asking that they would all be one, the disciples would be one. He says, I don't ask that for these only, just these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, all the ones throughout all the generations, us right here. Jesus, at that moment, John 17, was thinking about us and praying for us. His presence and his passion is there with us even in dire circumstances. One other echo in here that I want to mention that's that's really fantastic, not just the whole elements of Joseph and being the presence and all of that, but beyond that um, he says is uh, talking about um, this whole idea in here of like I have eager expectation of my deliverance. I want you to underline that word in your in your Bible, or highlighted on your tablet, that word deliverance. Because it's only used uh, very rarely in Scripture, and it's a direct correlation, what Paul says right there, to the book of Job. That same word, deliverance, the Hebrew equivalent incredibly powerful, incredibly rare. And when those readers heard that, they would recognize that he was talking about Job for sure. And listen to this passage where Job, after all the things that he had gone through, says, though he that is God, though he slay me, though he decide my life is not worth living anymore, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face because indeed this will turn out for my deliverance for no godless person can stand before him. And that's the foreshadowing of this incredible passage that's going to come next. Though he slay me, no matter what happens, I will ultimately be rescued. Incredible. Second thing that we want to recognize here uh, starts with the next passage. Not only are we, um, you know, saying that, um, that I need help, but the second thing that I want you to write down is Paul's heartbeat, Paul's attitude says, I am here for you. I am here for you. Not in the cheesy, relational, like, love song way, like, you know, Bon Jovi, you know, I'll be there for you. These five words, I swear to you. When you breathe, I want to be the air for you. He's turning into molecules? Like, what are you talking about? Not the cheesy, like, hey, we're going to be friends forever, man. Like, hey, I'm always going to be here for you. Hey, you can always rely on me. You can count on me. Like, yeah, man, I'm always going to be the shoulder you can lean on. Throw all that stuff away. Paul's saying, no, I am here, meaning literally on this earth. I'm existing for you. Not an emotional reliance, but as an example and bigger than that, as a teacher and as an impactor to bring as many of you as possible with me into God's glorious kingdom, I am here existing for you to read the passage. Verse uh, 21, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain for if I am to live in the flesh, to be here, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh here is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And we'll stop right there. Do you see what's going on here? Paul, in this incredible passage, centered around this phrase, for me to live is Christ. He's here with me. I recognize that, but I want to go be with him. To die is gain. To be with Jesus, that would be fantastic. But indecision is clouding me right now. I always joke around with Becca, you know, when we're driving along the road and there's a squirrel in the middle of the road. You ever experience this? I'm like, you know what kills squirrels? Indecision. Right? You ever notice that? Uh, I'm going to go th- uh, No, I'm going to go. Uh, no, maybe I'll sit here for, oh no, I'm going to go this way. It's like they can't make up their mind and they end up going to squirrel heaven Because they can't just make up their mind. And Paul's like, well, I don't know. I mean, to go and be with Jesus, that's going to be great. That's really what I want. That would be far better. But at the same time, to stay down here is going to mean fruitful labor for me. There's a lot of work left to do. You really need me. So which which is better? I cannot choose. I'm just kind of caught in between this. They're both great options. And that's what his attitude was. Gospel spreading impacting that's going on down here glory worship freed from this body that's going up up there both of them are good both of them are needed and i don't really know which one i'm gonna do what an incredible attitude he had i want you to think about this illustration um not too long ago uh i was on a, i was on a vacation um and we uh it was by the beach, and anytime we go to those types of settings, I always want to go fishing. Like, not just off the shore, that's great, but I want to get some big fish, you know what I mean? So we were at this place, and I was checking in, and there was a very well-dressed gentleman who spoke very good English. And he's like, hey, you want to go charter fishing? And I'm like, um, Yes. Okay, well, here's what we can do. He's showing me his nice picture book with all these great-looking yachts and all this stuff. And he's like, it's only $100 for four hours of charter fishing on this boat way out there, you know, looking for swordfish and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, that's an awesome deal. Becca, would you like to come with me? No. Any of our other friends, please, can you guys come with me? It'll be so much fun. No. What if I pay for you? Would you come then? No. OK, fine. So I go by myself, and I should have known I was in trouble when I'm out there at 7 AM and the, and the van comes from the fishing charter place in another country to pick me up. And I go in. Driver doesn't speak English. All he speaks is Spanish. All the other people on the trip, they're from Russia. <laughs> I'm like, hey, guys, how you doing? And they start speaking in Russia. I'm like, oh, where are you guys from? Russia. Uh, Oh, okay. I, I'm from the United States. They're like, USA, go Trump. I'm like, yeah. It's kind of a long conversation, but hey, Trump, Trump. They start calling me Trump. I'm like, I am not anything like Trump. Let's go fishing. But I should have known, you know, and everybody's speaking a different language. I'm the only person speaking English. We pull up there, it's this. Jankity-looking beach, all the boats are way out there. It's not a pleasant little dock and yachts and all this stuff. We take this little wigwam canoe like all the way out there. I'm like, what am I getting? Nobody even knows where I am. I'm like, I got no phone. I got nothing. You know, and this boat looks like, you know, remember Gilligan's Island? What that boat looked like? All like beat up. That was the one that we went on. I'm like, oh, good heavens. So there's no ladder. They're pulling me up by my leg, you know. It's a disaster. It was cold, you know, The was... it's like not fun, and it starts to rain in like an hour and a half. It's, it's, it's crazy, I'm like this is the worst idea ever. And then all of a sudden, the rod starts screaming. You know, and we had numbered ourselves one through six, and I was of course number six, you know. The luck of the draw, I'm like, oh great. But this is what happened. Go ahead with this next slide. That's what we're talking about. That's a mahi-mahi. And this is the size of them. Okay? And these things start pounding the, the rods. And we had three of them on at one time. Okay? So finally they start calling for me. Trump! Your turn! Trump! Come on! <laughs> Not Trump. You know, we sit down and we're catching it. We're having a great time and everything is going crazy. They're jibber jabbering, you know, in Spanish and in Russian. It's wild. But here's the thing, every time they would catch one of these monstrous fish, I mean, that thing's not small, they would just catch it and it would just be flopping around in the back of this small boat. And we caught 16 fish in the span of like 15 minutes. Okay, now listen to me. I'm there in my flip flops and shorts. And like these things are big and they are flopping like they could hurt you. And more than that, when they got them in, they just unhooked this little spot where the hook was up here. Fish is down here and the big hook is down there. They just undid this and just let them flop around. And they're putting another thing on and throwing them out. So these things, 12, 14, 16 of them are flopping around, hurting people. Giant hooks are out of their mouth and flinging around, whipping against my ankle. You know, I'm like, this is terrible. Somebody do something with these fish, like send them to Mahi heaven or hit them with a club or something. Like they're just going nuts. And it's like, you know, they're bleeding and like the tail's like smacking against all the blood. And I'm like, all over, I'm like, I'm going to have to answer some questions about this. But the point is this, the reason they were so careless and they just dragged them all in and cut the line and got another one out, and all this chaos is because they knew this is short-lived. They knew that it was just a matter of minutes and we would lose the school. They would all go back down, they would disappear, they would get whatever, and, and it would be done. Barren wasteland all over again. So in the captain's mind, it doesn't matter the inconvenience. It doesn't matter at some level the danger. We're going to do everything we can because we know this is short-lived. And you've got to trust me on this. And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Paul and kind of his attitude. Take that silly illustration, multiply it by about a million, and you could see the element of where Paul was okay, was still living. He said, you know what? I'm gonna have eternity with God and that's gonna be great, man. To die is gain. I'm not afraid of that. I can't wait to see him. I'm eagerly expecting that I'm not gonna be ashamed. I can't wait for that. But God, if you want me to, I'll still stay here. I'll live for them. I am here existing day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour, week by week, not for me. I'm not existing for me. You, by the way, are not existing for me. Paul's saying, I am living for you. And I know the time is so short. I know we've got to work hard. I know it's going to be inconvenient. I know it's going to be messy. I know it's going to be dangerous, but I don't care because I want to get as much accomplished in this short life as I possibly can. So I just want to close just with with one verse here. You know, verse 26, Paul says, hey, why am I doing all this? So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. I can't wait to come to you and as I've always been before, I'm here For you? You've prayed for me. You've strengthened me. You've allowed me to get through. So now I'm here for you. I'm existing for you. And what does this life mean? Underline this phrase in verse 22. If you don't get anything else from the whole entire talk, get this. Verse 22, he says, hey, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Labor. Underline that right there. Fruitful labor. Paul's saying the reason I'm existing, the reason I'm here. Is so that I can share the fruit of God, the fruit of Christ, the fruit of the Spirit with a lost and dying and hungry world. And you think about that in Galatians chapter 5. I, Hold up here the fruits of the Spirit. What what are you talking about? What are the evidences that that Christ really is living within us? The fruit of the Spirit, we know these, love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the things that people are going to recognize as like that person's changed. He's different. And Paul's saying, man, I can't wait to be with you to share those fruits with you, Paul's saying, man, I want to be like a farmer at an endless fruit market. I want to have all this love and all this joy, and I want to be able to share that with you, but listen to me very closely. When we started out and talked about how we don't want to be trite and how these things are serious, I want you to think about um, this perspective. I want you to think about um, the opportunities that we have to show this very fruit, Okay. Think about this. you know anyone who's lonely? Or are you lonely yourself? God's saying, well, I've got some love here and love that never ends that I can pour out on you and bigger than that, that I can let you share with someone else. Do you know anyone around you, in your workplace, in your school, um, you know, some neighbor that lives that is lonely? God's saying, you know, one of my fruits is love and I've got this endless supply in this grand farmer's market of love and you can share that and that's what you live for. You're here for them. What about this? Somebody who's hurting? A situation where there's hurt? God says the same thing about his joy. I've got Jesus living within me, and let me share some of that with you. But think about this. Think about your world, where you are right now. Can you experience this fruit? Think about these concepts. I can't show you peace unless there is somehow turmoil in my world. If everything's going great, and I'm confident in all things, and everybody's healthy, and everything's great, how's the peace of Christ gonna be displayed through me? At some level, in order to show this fruit, there needs to be a a hunger and a turmoil for that. I can't show you patience unless there's difficulty around me. I can't show you joy unless there are sorrowful circumstances in which I can stand in the stench of it or I can lean on the Savior. I can't show you faithfulness unless I'm so tired and so confused and so anxious that I just want to quit. That's when the fruit of the spirit of faithfulness kicks in. And I can't show you self-control unless I'm put in a situation where anger and frustration boil over. Do you see what I'm saying? If you look at your life and if you really understand the concept that to live another hour, another day, another week means fruitful labor for me. Then all the situations that I know of, where there's anger, where there's bitterness, where there's sorrow and everything else, I've got a responsibility and it's gonna be my joy to share that fruit of God with those situations. Just in closing, let me throw this out to you. When we think about the idea of sacrifice and being selfless, we think about the number one thing that we can do is to, to give our life for somebody else, right? Man, if there's a burning car, if there was a home and we knew that there were people inside, you know, heroes are the ones who selflessly run in danger's way and harm's way and rescue somebody. And, And for somebody to die for someone else is like the ultimate act of giving and selflessness, right? But what Paul's saying right here is kind of the opposite of all that. Paul's saying, really? the selfish thing for me to do right now as I'm here in prison, the selfish thing would be to die. That would be so much better for me because I would be with Jesus. I'm not concerned. I'm not distracted. This world, I mean, there's some nice things about it, but this is so much better. So selfishly, I want to die. But Paul is saying, man, the the real humble thing, the selfless thing to do would be to actually live. Because I know there's so much gospel that needs to be shared through my life. And I've got the secret and I've got the power through the prayers of God's people to recognize that I'm here and I exist for them. So I'm going to have my eyes wide open for areas that I can spread God's fruit.